Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Well, welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm really excited to have as our conversation partner and guest today, Dr. David Kwan. He is the physician in charge for the Brigada Harris Cancer Pavilion, the clinical director for the Henry Ford Pancreatic Cancer Center, and the division head for surgical oncology in Detroit. Dr. Kwan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to the next couple of minutes. Tell me a little bit about your backstory. How how did you find your way into medicine? How did how did you know that that was like a path that you felt created and and wired for? <laughs> uh, this is a great uh, question. I have known since I was seven years old that I wanted to be a physician, and and by sixth grade, I knew I wanted to be a surgeon. I knew I wanted to be a surgeon because a classmate's father actually came into a, our sixth grade classroom and talked about his performing heart surgery. And I still remember to this day, he talked about, you know, stopping the heart and restarting the heart. And uh, maybe I was enthralled by the possibility of that, but that affirmed my desire to be a physician and ultimately uh, to become a surgeon. So I've known since I was quite young that I was going to be a, a surgeon and uh, throughout my journey into medicine, and we could spend hours on end talking about how that was never the most straightforward journey. But out of that, the clarity remained the same that I always knew I was going to be a surgeon. Ultimately, I became what's called a surgical oncologist. And so that's what's called a cancer surgeon. Uh, there are many different types of surgeons that one can be. Uh, but I think the lifestyle of a surgical oncologist suited who I was. I like uh, extreme technicality. I was classically trained in piano and uh, have worked hours on end and just playing scales and, and trying to do it right. And uh, that type of precision is required in cancer surgery. And that suited me personally, but um, there was something deeper to uh, cancer surgery that uh, got to me as a person and ultimately based on my faith uh, that I really believe I was chosen to serve and chosen to serve people in their darkest hours. And some of that means I can use the skills that I've acquired over years, but oftentimes it is actually not being a surgeon, in fact, but being able to help patients in their journey and in their darkest hour, try to be their strongest advocate for them in the medical system. Dr. Kwan, a lot of people would say, like, just stereotypically, that people who have surgical expertise and people of faith are not necessarily compatible personalities. What, what's it been like for you to navigate that at least perceived tension between faith and science or faith and technical knowledge of something as complex as uh, oncology? Yeah, you know, so some some people have brought that up with me and and have asked how I could have faith and have religion and understand Christianity when patients in my world get cancer, right? And um, I, I usually respond in the following manner. I do have a unique opportunity to use a scalpel. And when we open the inside of human beings, everyone is exactly the same on the inside. And then if you take that another uh, level, the human body is so perfectly made in that moment and in every body, that this to me is perf a perfect answer of how this is not by chance, and the human body is created uh, miraculously. 
And in doing so, as you can see that then is if understanding that it's a lot easier for me to actually say that medicine, which tends to be very cold and methodical and scientific, is actually an extension of faith because you can actually see that we have with our human minds and our knowledge and what we've been able to do have been able to understand things in ways that we never previously could and then to augment that with what we can do actually to me inherently it's all synergistic now that's just my perspective but i when i see it it isn't it isn't two separate worlds but i actually think it's a blended combination of both that's brilliant. I love I love the nuance that you bring to that. Dave, talk about how your faith informs your ability to handle cases on an individual basis. Because every every circum- set of circumstances is a little bit different. Wow. Um, you're asking some really deep questions really quick. Um, if I may, is you and I have known each other for quite some time. And uh, I like to talk maybe about my story of how my life I had mentioned earlier has never been so straightforward in this road to medicine. And one of the tail ends of my journey was that when I graduated medical school, I graduated from UC San Diego and I was living in La Jolla and I ended up in Detroit in the early two thousands, which was not the greatest time uh, of Detroit's history. And, you know, we're going through Renaissance right now, but um, I came into the city and uh, and uh, I went from probably the nicest city uh, in America into one of the worst at the time. And uh, I had struggled in medical school. And I still remember when I was told that I would be going to Detroit in the matches, I actually got down on my knees in my room. And I said, I don't understand why I'm going to Detroit, God. Um, but I trust that there's a bigger reason for this. And I don't see it now, but I will trust that you will show me in time. And fast forward to 2023, and it has been so evidently clear that I would meet some of the greatest friends in my life. We're involved in a small group now for 10 years. And so we have, you know, have friends turn into families. And there's been through divine intervention, every step of the way, God has shown that there's a reason why I'm here. How does that translate into my daily practices? I really genuinely believe that I've been called to serve in someone's darkest hour. Um, Although I'm a surgeon, there are times when I can't operate um, and it's found a little too late, but I think even in those darkest moments that I can provide a beacon of hope for our patients, knowing that there's someone fighting for them and that there can be opportunities for clarity and even some opportunity for peace and contentment in those moments. And I, I, I truly believe that I've been asked to serve in that way. What's the difference between families that are able to navigate a really challenging diagnosis with courage and grit and tenacity and families that maybe maybe have a harder time doing that? I Again, I'm asking you to speak in generalities, but like, are there, is there something true about the psyche of somebody who is able to stare down what feels like a terminal diagnosis and still find hope and somebody who doesn't? Yeah, I think you're asking a loaded question because I think there are people who grapple with faith 
uh, mm-hmm. in their own lives, superficially, right? Just maybe even getting to know Jesus Christ as their Savior versus those who have been Christians for a long time and uh, people that are just in the middle of the journey. So I'd actually say there's a whole gamut of ways that I've seen faith being incorporated into medicine sort of in those moments. There are those that actually, through the cancer diagnosis, I think, come to faith, come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, and come to understand that um, while things may not end in the way that we like to define things as humanly possible, meaning prolonged life, that some people actually do come to a different sense of peace that they didn't have prior to this diagnosis. And I think that's fantastic and 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 encouraging. Where I find some pretty cool moments in my practice, and we can you can ask me about it as much as you want, but there are those that have been given a terminal diagnosis who are so strong in their faith that they inspire those around them. And then more importantly is they show really how people can live their lives with grace and peace and hope. And the hope is something that's different in these sort of scenarios. It's transcendent from this earthly hope. Hmm. It's, it's, I'm about to meet my father and you know what, I'm going to take this time that I have, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to make peace. I'm going to do what I need to do, but I'm not even worried about what's going on right now because I'm so far focused on meeting my father and my savior that um, people actually do really well. And I think this is a combination of of medicine and blending it with faith that I can scientifically give you statistical numbers of how long you're supposed to survive. But I think when you have really strong faith and the mental fortitude married with modern day medicine, there's no such thing as your statistical data on this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Faith is too powerful in, in these situations. And so um i've had many patients and patients through the church and so this is this is even crazier is my patients are fellow believers and we've prayed behind closed doors and i will tell you i'm thinking one particular patient who recently passed and he was only sort of supposed to survive about a year and a half and he went three and a half four wow boy did was his story powerful so it sounds like there are some certain some circumstances where you're getting inspired and, and equipped and encouraged by the stories of your patients and just walking them wa- watching them walk out their journey with with just a, a really unflinching faith. Yeah, I, I mean, personally, professionally, absolutely. Um, but in this really small world of pancreas cancer that I live in is also is we're able to share phone numbers uh, with patients and patients' families. And so it's not just me, but it goes to other families as well. And and these support groups that have formed because of our common faith and prayer networks and prayer channels, um, boy, are they powerful is all I can say. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing. Dave, I lost my dad about four years ago. And while while he didn't have cancer, one of the really tricky things that we were having to navigate as a family is how how do we make end of life decisions for somebody that we love deeply who's incapacitated or maybe doesn't fully understand uh, the severity of the circumstances that you're in. How do you encourage families to, 
to navigate those circumstances. Cause there's, there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of anxiety, potential guilt that comes with making those kind of choices. And again, I know, I know it's not a one size fits all set of circumstances, but what are, what are some general guidelines or insights that you have for people who might be staring that scenario down today? Wow. You, you hit the head on the nail is the feeling of guilt, right? Of not, or maybe the patient and then actually the family members as well. So that is something that hits home because I do see a lot of patients that unfortunately are terminal at the time of diagnosis. And and I have to tell them to start getting their affairs in order. Regardless of religion for a quick second, I think it's imperative that the medical provider take that difficult conversation and bring up the fact that one, what does a terminal diagnosis mean? I think you have to be very forthright and honest with patients and their families that if the time is quick, then you should probably let them know, hey, it's a four to six month timeline versus, hey, a two to three year timeline. Providers and physicians do not do a good enough job having that honest conversation. And and so I, I think you need to, patients and their families that really have to advocate to have these hard conversations from the get-go. And what's your, what's your theory on that, Dave? Why do you think it's difficult for providers to speak uh, as, as directly as they might need to in order to serve a family well? Because the, the job of a physician is to heal. Mm. In a situation like this, you can't heal. Is Maybe you can give time, buy time, but you can't heal. And I think doctors are so used to achieving, right? They had to achieve all their life to get into medical school, to get into residency, to get a job, to do well, to do patient care. They're uncomfortable in these sort of scenarios where they don't have an answer anymore and they can't do anything. So I, I think it's it's discomfort for many people. And it's also a very tough topic to talk about death. Now, for me, over the course of time, because maybe faith in my patients is I no longer fear that word. And I can be very honest on how we approach it and how we would do this. For which you had mentioned guilt, and I want to bring that back, is I actually talk about that from the get-go, is we need to have clarity in my conversations with the patient and what their desire is, so that other members of the family don't have to live with a guilt and burden of making any decision. Is if that patient understands that there's guilt associated with decisions that are postponed, actually a lot of things get taken care of right away. What do I mean by that? Is if your wishes are not known and your heart were to stop in the hospital for someone with a terminal cancer diagnosis, is you get the call, someone gets, the family member gets a call at two o'clock in the morning when the heart stops and says, you have 15 seconds to decide, do I keep going or do I do I stop? And whatever answer that person provides, they live for the rest of their life with the guilt of, did I make the right decision? And if you can convey that to the patient and their family members, then you can actually have a very honest conversation of how things should, uh, the patient would want things done. Do I want to pass my own house or alternatively, do I want to pass in a hospice outside of my own home and I'll use my own personal uh, life plans as an example is if I were to just, this may sound morbid, but if, if I were to told that I had six months to live, 
I would withdraw treatment and then I would dictate how everything goes for which I would want no medical treatment and I would not want to pass in my own home. My children are young enough that I want their home to be filled with memories of me being alive and vibrant, not the final days of my father, you know, being in bed and, you know, me being carried out uh, to the morgue. Those are conversations, key questions that one have to ask. And, and once you're open to the idea, then you really can get from the patient exactly what they want. Are they comfortable passing in their own home? And many people do want to pass in their own home, in the comforts of their own home. If their heart were to stop, would you want artificial drugs to keep someone alive? Um, those sorts of things. And even getting some financial matters uh, addressed. So it's a difficult topic to broach. It is something that I think is imperative that everyone needs to have. I drive it usually out of protect your family so they don't have to live with any guilt, uh, the children or the, the caregiver. And oftentimes after that is discussed, then one of two things I generally see happen, people of faith, and it may not even be our common Christian faith, oftentimes are somewhat comfortable with where they're ending up and uh, we can sort of talk about uh, being truly at peace in our mind and in our hearts and then there are those that are very that haven't thought about it and struggle through it and then that's subsequent uh, meetings where they're given some time to process and then allowed to hopefully make the right decision hey that's super helpful and you you talked about how sometimes surgeons will punt on kind of defining reality because they're they're wired to be healers yep. i think sometimes patients will punt on having hard conversations and again this is just my perception is because like the surgeons they don't want to admit defeat there are some people who are like hey if i if i start having honest conversations about what might happen then that will mean that i psychologically flip the switch somewhere and means that i'm not going to fight anymore what what's your perception what's your, what's your take on on that and ha have you observed that before yeah, absolutely. I think if I may take a, a step further, I, I suspect there's a fear of death. Mm. Who doesn't fear death at any point in their life, right? Whether you watch it on a TV show or what you, whether you really have an existential moment about it. Um, those moments, I, th I think you have to be just as supportive as you can to help patients through that discomfort of not wanting to give up. And And I will say is just because you are told that you will not be able to beat a diagnosis or a medical condition doesn't mean that you can't have hope. And I think those are two very different things. And those that understand a bigger picture, a higher calling, a better world, often can actually have hope, like I said, and come to a conclusion that this can't be beat or, or that a, a condition can't be overcome. Dave, what do you say to some people who uh, continue life-prolonging measures because they're they're really uh, hoping against hope for a miracle, and they're people of great faith, and they say like, "Hey, we're not gonna we're gonna continue to prolong things uh, medically or scientifically because we're we're holding out hope that God is still going to intervene in a powerful and miraculous way." And and I I know that you know that I I don't deny that that can happen, and in some cases does in fact happen. But there are some circumstances where it seems like a person's maybe faith community or even their clergy person um, can cause more harm than good in in maybe act, acting in a manner that contradicts things that you might believe to be ethical. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm I know I'm 
towing into some pretty controversial waters here, but what's, what's been your sense or take on that? And again, I say this, you, you know, that I'm, I'm married to a nurse. So as a clergy person married to an RN, we have conversations like this all the time. So uh, navigating uh, murky waters right now, as I will tell you, I am not smart enough to answer this question. And uh, so what I'm about to say is probably my own opinion, uh, anecdotal. Uh, I don't have what's called level one evidence, which means I went up against a clinical trial. But here's what I think is, uh, I am human enough to know that I've seen science work and I've seen science predict that certain scenarios don't end in our favor. I'm also human enough to know that because of my faith, I've seen miraculous things happen. And I think my gut instinct is, is if a family were to say, despite a, a bad condition that they still have faith, I actually, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think to some degree that that is something that we all have to drive towards, right? Is progress, progress that something might help things, that there might be clarity in treatment, that there might be clarity in new discovery. And I believe in that and I've seen that happen. However, I've also, the law of averages suggests that that isn't the norm. And so I'm comfortable in my own discussion saying I respect that. I would say that I've seen both sides happen. And as, again, as my personal calling to help people in their darkest hour is to be supportive. But if this were to come at complete compromise to quality of life and the patient's wishes, then as also their provider and physician is at that time, as I would say, I do think this might be medically futile and have an honest conversation because someone should do that. Um, it's not always what they want, but if we have an established relationship, then I do think it's something that I can say, and then again, support whatever decision they make. Dave, a few years ago, I recommended a, a family that uh, attends the, the church that I, that I worked for uh, to you with a very similar set of circumstances. And they, they said that you were just amazingly gracious and kind and encouraging as they they walked their adult daughter towards the end of her journey here on this earth. I imagine that even though you've had moments like that more than a handful of times, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get easier over time, does it? Like all of, all of those are challenging in their own regard. Um, I'm not looking at you in the camera right now because. I think you just popped the can open. So uh, it's about to overflow with emotion. Um, it it doesn't get easier. Uh, no, it doesn't get easier. You learn to put your guard up. And in moments where you develop really good bonds with patients and their family, you can cry with them. And yeah. you can hug them. And you can sit with them. And... Uh, yeah, it doesn't get easier because the law of averages for pancreas cancer is 80% of the time we find them too late and I can't do anything. Mm. So it drives me harder um, professionally to work harder, to think harder, to collaborate more, to see if we can find a way. But behind closed doors, uh, yeah, I can see almost every face of a patient that unfortunately has not survived this disease. Well, Dave, I, I commend you for just uh, the grace and the tenderness and the kindness that you've shown patients in, in addition to your amazing 
technical capacities. Uh, I think, I think it's a gift to have somebody who can care for total person, especially with some of the stereotypes that run around, 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 around surgeons, right. That they're, <laughs> that they're really good technically, but maybe not so gifted personally. And, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you, uh, you, you kind of buck, buck that trend and counter it. Dave, what do you, what do you say to families who maybe, maybe their person didn't have an advanced directive and they're, they had to make a hard choice and they continue to struggle with guilt and toward, towards this day. What, what do you say to them as both a provider and a person of faith? I know that's a, a pastoral question, but. What do you say to somebody who four months, six months, two years later is still struggling with guilt? Like we have somebody in our extended family who on, on their bad days, they'll, they'll, they will say it's, it's my fault that this person passed. And and we know that's not true. And I think, I think God wants to remind them that that's not true, but that can be, that can be a tough, a tough storm to, to get out of. Yeah. In a moment like that, what I've found to be most true in my world. And I think we should encourage this more is there's no right or wrong answer in that moment. And in, in my heart of hearts, I know that actually the decision your family member made was the right decision. And if they can be affirmed that the decision was the right decision, even though it didn't end up the way we wanted it to be, people can have more peace. As a medical provider, if a patient chooses to have no surgery and they choose quality of life with what time they have, my job is not to tell them, no, you need surgery. My job is to put my hand on their hand and say, I affirm your decision. You made the right decision and I will support you. And to your family members, if they were saying, I don't know if I ever did this, is I would stop dead in my tracks and said in that moment, that was absolutely the right decision. Yeah. And your love, the loved one who is no longer with us would probably be looking down and say, you know what? That was okay. That was the right decision in that moment. And if people can understand that, that there's no right or wrong, there's no absolute but that it is a right decision to understand their circumstances and can be affirmed by that, then that gives peace. Yeah. With the guilt or the regret of it, hopefully. Yeah. I was reading in the book of Proverbs recently, and there's this one line that says the lot, which is kind of co biblical uh, terminology for, for like a dice or like a coin toss. It says like the lot is thrown into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of peace in that to be able to say, Hey, if, if it's, if it's a person's time, uh, for their journey to end or for them to go home with the father, then, then God knows that. And, and we can trust God to be sovereign in that and not, not give ourselves more power, uh, in fact, or in principle than we truly have. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. Right. And I think that's the hardest part to, uh, humanly fathom what you just said. And I always admire how intellectual you are. Uh, so to put it that way is absolutely, absolutely spot on. I think. Yeah, Dave, I think one of the most powerful insights I had as as my father was was passing away four years ago is we were, we just had it as a family. We we're wrestling with this question because 
one of the one of the challenges my mom was obviously wanting to to have him be as lucid as possible but but his pain was becoming increasingly unmanageable so that was the but that was part of attention you know they've been married for over 50 years she wanted uh him to be coherent in his final moments but then you know the professionals that we were with are like hey his his pain level is increasing let's try to make him comfortable so even that was like a hard a hard tension for her to manage and as we were sitting around his bedside I, there, the one passage that kept coming back to mind was John 11, where, you know, Lazarus has passed away and Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha and he goes, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And, and I love that he asked him a very direct question. And I think that as I was losing my dad, I had to, had to, had to ask that answer that question. It's like, do I believe that the resurrection is real? Uh, because it is a it's a doctrine that I've given kind of cognitive assent to over the years, but I didn't really feel like it fully dropped into my gut because the truth was if the resurrection, if the bodily resurrection of believers is real, then I can let dad go knowing that his last breath on this earth is not the end of his eternal story. But if the resurrection is not real, then, then that despair is, <laughs> is, is valid. And so I found myself having to say, all right, this is, this is that moment where that principle has to drop from, from my brain, uh, into my gut. And as people pray for miracles, sometimes I, what I try to remind them is, is the greatest miracle of all is the fact that, that Christ lived, died and rose from the dead. And if, if that miracle is real, then whether, whether we bounce back from a terminal diagnosis or not, it isn't unimportant, but it's ultimately in, it's ultimately inconsequential because God is, God is bigger than, uh, that one, that one particular moment. If, if, the, if in fact the resurrection is what he says it is. Yeah, you uh, you uh, said it so much better than I ever could, and uh, I admire what you just said. Is I'm I'm hoping you're going to give me this recording because uh, I'm definitely going to listen to that again. <laughs> Dave, what do you are there any resources that you would point families to if if they're continuing to wrestle with end of life issues? Uh, where 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 would you point them other than to maybe their clergy person or their medical provider? I need you to clarify for me on that one. If somebody has a family member who either has uh, a terminal diagnosis and they're trying to figure out how to walk that out, or maybe if their person didn't give an advanced directive and they're having to make hard choices about how their journey ends, what 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 resources would, would you encourage them to look into? All right. So as a medical provider, I think there's going to be, uh, I'm going to answer as a medical provider and then I'll answer as a human being. Uh, and as a medical provider, I think, Let's go to that scenario where you're talking where people are grappling a little bit is their palliative medicine or hospice medicine are the professional resources where one goes to talk about end of life issues in a very systematic manner. Do you want us to do chest compressions? Yes or no. Do you want us to give artificial drugs? Yes or no. Those are things that are actually um, actually required within the confines of uh, our medical system that you, you need to get that squared away. Um, and that's a facilitated discussion. So I think this is to answer some of the hard questions that people are grappling with, how do, how do we want to pass? And I can't emphasize enough actually how good palliative medicine and hospice medicine are, are at approaching those topics in a very just form. You have to be formal, but in a right. form that needs to be addressed. From a faith-based standpoint, I, you know, you're talking about clergy, I think community support within uh, the confines of one's faith is actually imperative. 
in reality, just like we always think we're doing it alone, is we're not the only one that's ever done this. And there are many resources and people that have had the personal experiences. And I find that people understanding other people's anecdotal experiences can actually make the situation a little bit better. And, and what better way to do that within the confines of one's own faith and community? But that's not to say that there aren't formalized ways that you can address it over the internet or with particular companies. But I think in these very highly charged emotional settings, when you go to these sort of commercialized products, it tends to be a little bit more informal. And what most people in these difficult situations are doing is longing for a connection in making those decisions. And so I actually do think faith-based community uh, support groups, namely, are actually um, pretty powerful. Now, the caveat to that is because these are generally grassroots efforts, there's no standardization. And there's no way to say that the book says it has to be done A, B, C, D, and E based, based on your particular type of faith or your sect of faith. And I think that's a, always the hardest part because we're, we want standardization, but uh, as I've done a lot of Enneagram work, everyone hears everything differently, right? So what I've learned is it's how can you resonate with the particular individual or individuals in that moment so that they can hear it in a way that would be most uh, edifying to them and their family members. Dr. Kwan, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, and your insight uh, for the way that you have faithfully served uh, so many patients over the course of your history and the way that you've been a gift to Kelly and I and our kids over the years as well. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. Wow. Great, great. It's an honor to be here, Steve. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.